If you've walked around the Boston Common in the past year, you've noticed its showpiece new sculpture, the Embrace Memorial, a towering bronze monument which depicts the embracing arms of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King. The group behind the monument worked for years to bring it to fruition through a pandemic and years roiled by protests against police violence while advocating for racial equity. And with their showpiece statue in place, Embrace Boston, the group, is moving into their next phase. So what does a monument mean here in 2024, when we're reckoning with often ugly histories and reshaping our cultural landscapes? Is there still power in public enduring art, even or especially if it doesn't look like the statues of great men peppered around our state and country? I'm Jennifer Smith, and this is The Codcast, Commonwealth Beacon's podcast about policy and civic life here in Massachusetts. Today, I'm joined by Amari Paris Jeffries, president and CEO of Embrace Boston. Amari, thanks so much for being here. I'm excited to be here this afternoon. Okay, let's actually go back in time a little bit first. So about a year ago, there was a very large statue that was about to be unveiled on the Boston Common. How did you end up part of that? You know, it was an opportunity that uh, came to me from a few different directions. And so at the time, Embrace was embedded at the Boston Foundation and Kate Gedge, who is the chief philanthropy officer and one of the leaders at TBF, was stewarding the Embrace from a TBF point of view. Simultaneously, Marie St. Fleur, who was the executive director of, at the time, King Boston, was the executive director, and she was doing that on a part-time basis. And I think both of them realized that this initiative needed a full-time person to to staff it, to man it, to be thinking about it 24-7. And, you know, Marie was in the middle of launching a new business and running this and a couple of other projects that she had going. And so this opportunity mm. was going to be vacant, and they they asked me at different ends. And so we started the conversation in 2019, and I accepted the job one week before the pandemic. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I just left my job. I took on a job to raise resources for a monument, and you know, we don't even know if we can breathe outside or how long can we be in front of someone and everything was the really early dark ages. And so that's how my intro to Embrace Boston, formerly King Boston, started. What did it represent at the time? Because we'll talk a little bit about sort of the the transition from a sort of standalone monument to something that's got greater significance, not just in kind of cultural spaces, but also in political spaces and sort of how that evolved, but sort of taking yourself back to when it was a singular project and a singular monument, uh, what was the goal? What what were you sort of hoping to accomplish if you could raise the money, if you could get all of those logistics to work? What did the end look like to you at that time? Yeah, they were, they were these three must-dos when I came on that I was told. And so there had been a series of conversations in the community, really socializing this opportunity to build a monument. Um, There were conversations around, should it be in Roxbury? Should it be in the places that Dr. King spent most of his time at? Uh, Or should it be downtown? Should should it be centralized? Should this monument be in a place that both visitors and residents could experience either through intention or happenstance? And so as a result of those conversations and this agreement that it would be downtown, it would be in Boston Common, 
there were three mandates. One was, to, of course, build the monument, raise the resources, raise the will to build the monument. Two, raise another million dollars and donate that million dollars to 12th Baptist Church, which was Dr. King's home church. And so uh, to make sure that the congregation, that church was on even further uh, footing with, with resources. And then the last thing was to build a center inside Roxbury. No definition of what that center meant and no requirement for the organization to run that center, but there would there needed to be a physical presence in Roxbury. And so that was the demand. And I think, you know, because of the pandemic and in Freedom Summer 2020, where all of us witnessed the murder of George Floyd and there were mass protests and conversations, including the role of monuments, you know, should these Confederate monuments, should these symbols of hate still be around in our country, but also in the world? I think in the UK and other places, they were also toppling monuments uh, throwing them in, in water and all sorts of things, right? Reimagining those as places. So all of a sudden, King Boston took on a life of its own in, in its meaning of this monument. I think simultaneously, there was also some feelings that we were having around being disconnected from friends, family, loved ones. This idea of embracing people that you love, that was an inspiration for the photograph of the monument, you know, the embrace Dr. and Mrs. King hugging, embracing each other because of pure joy when he found out that they had won the Nobel Prize. And so I think it became a symbol. Embrace became a symbol for Boston. It came a symbol for aspiration, came a symbol of hope. And I think that is what resonated uh, people to see this as more than a monument, really a movement. And kind of looking back now, a year in, there was so much discussion initially from from sort of all quarters and, and a lot of different communities about, you know, what is it that makes a powerful monument? What, you know, is the place of a monument in a you know location like Boston, where everybody is, you know, a man on a horse? There's a million men on horses all over Massachusetts. And so a lot of the conversations that I was hearing at the time were sort of the question around the design itself. Uh, and then should there be something that looked more like what we tend to think of as great man, great figure monuments uh, to kind of create a parallel. So so how do you feel sort of a year out about the the sort of way that the monument was crafted and designed and sort of where it stands in connection with other monuments that we keep up here in Massachusetts? Yeah, you know, I think we I'm even more affirmed that we made the right decision and I think as we understand the American story through our monuments. There is a style in which they are erected, usually on a plinth, usually in the neoclassical style, usually in a way that they are raised above us. You cannot actually touch the monument. Uh, you have to look at that, right? And so it's an embodied experience, even when you look at the current monuments, not only in Boston, but mostly across the country. If you go to the Lincoln Monument, Lincoln Memorial, you can see Lincoln, but you can't touch Lincoln. If you go to the Washington Monument, you can see the monument, but you can't touch it. Even our own Washington monument in the public garden is on a plinth in a neoclassical style where there's a small fence around that. So you can't even touch the podium, the pedestal in which he is sitting. And so this embodied experience of monuments, this great person, great man rendition of monuments that we've been socialized into um, has been the way that we have experienced monuments in this country and arguably the world. And we said, you know what, we have to think about the other ways in which the American monument story can be built. And so our monument 
And when I say R, I mean Boston's monument is, while it's big, it's two stories high, it's on the ground. And it's meant to be touched. It's meant to be uh, experienced. You should walk in the center of it. I've seen little kids lick it to see if it tastes like chocolate. It doesn't, so don't do it. You're listening to this. So it's an embodied experience. And so we want people, and Hank, Hank Willis Thomas, the artist, talks about being in the center of a hug. We want people to have a different embodied experience. We want to move away, I think, as the American monument movement is starting to, to happen. We want to move away from these great person monuments and move towards something that represents values. And when you see the embrace, we believe that it represents the value of embrace, love, togetherness. The aerial view is of two Irish love knots. And so those arms are actually two Irish love knots. And so there's an homage to Boston's rich Irish history, uh, also built in love. And so we want that to be the symbol of Boston, uh, not these two individuals, but the values and the essence of what these two individuals stood for. So thinking about what's happened in the year since, of course, you you talked about not just the pandemic, but also the broader sort of turmoil, the the continued push for racial justice. There were some very visible protests. How did you see sort of this this positioning, this monument, but then also thinking about the organization itself as having a place inside of not just Boston's physical space, but also kind of its emotional cultural space during a moment of of great turmoil? Yeah, you know, I think during the pandemic and immediately following, there were several organizations that were established or had been around that really emerged, uh, BECMA being one of them, New Commonwealth Fund, Embrace, Ujima, Boston Wall Black. And so these five organizations emerged during the pandemic to meet different needs of Black people, people of color, historically marginalized individuals, and in some cases, uh folks who, who were not from those groups, that this, these were organizations dedicated to justice belonging for everyone. Uh, and so I think we are a part of an ecosystem that has a certain way in which we approach our work, that we fit in an area that I think those other organizations uh, don't cover. And together, we cover a myriad of organizations. And so this idea that art and culture and research and policy are about narrative, and that a way in which racism is passed on from one generation to another, a way that racism is transmitted is through narrative. It's through narrative that looks like research and policy. It's through narrative that looks like art, right? We believe that art oftentimes functions as digital cookies. Uh, they emit a low frequency that talks us into something, that talks us into the values of the object or the people being memorialized. And so we have to build these low frequency cookies, analog cookies, these cell phone towers based on love, belonging. Uh, we have to create rituals that don't separate us, but rituals that bring us together. And so that is where Embrace's work concerns itself around narrative and the role of narrative to break down barriers and to build belonging and trust. And so we, we see that as our special contribution to, to the efforts and the continuing efforts. And, you know, we're in a dangerous, scary time in our country on, on the eve of another presidential election with multiple wars across the world. We're banning books and theories, and we're banning um, people's ability to control their own bodies and destinies. I think those analog cookies that exist across the country have been working. I think we have to build other ones that, that say something else. The embrace is one of those things that say something else. 
One of the things about the timing of this all that, that was so interesting to me, and I talked to Boston NAACP President Tanisha Sullivan on, on the podcast when the convention was in town, and sort of the question of essentially what does it mean to have a presence in Black Boston? What does it mean to talk honestly about both Boston's history as a city with some very troubling histories of, of racism, of slavery, and kind of perpetuated uh, inequities? But then also, what does it mean to recognize that Boston Boston is also home to many black people, many brown people. And so kind of having that conversation about the history while also recognizing that Bostonians are black as well has been kind of a very interesting, complicated discussion to watch happening in public. So so what is this kind of new era of embrace want to do with recognizing that that conversation has been taking place and at the same time kind of continuing to to reckon with the long-standing silence around some of these dynamics in Boston. Yeah, the conversation that you had with Tanisha, I would probably agree with many of the things that that she said and um I you know I I just want to add that there's ghosts in the machines, there's ghosts in the wood and I think if you're new to Boston or you have not been here for that long I think the recent documentary about the Charles Stewart case, I think the podcasts around the big dig, um, we're on, we're in the 50th anniversary of Boston school desegregation. The, these pivotal moments in the not so distant past, right? We, we socialize mostly every day with people who were around during that time, either as young people or, you know, now as elder statespersons in, in our city. And these ghosts exist in the machine. And I think when you might be new here and you say, well, this is a city that has a woman mayor and a diverse cabinet and diverse area chiefs and an all woman uh, leadership team from governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, attorney general. Like, I don't I don't know what's happening. I don't know what you're talking about. Then these ghosts live in, in the machine. Right. These ghosts live in the bones of, of our city. And there are still people who've been here for a long time. And I think we we are in a moment where we have to reconcile that past and the type of distrust that exists in some of the systems and infrastructure of the city that has long forgotten some communities. And so while people who are new here might experience a different mm-hmm. Boston, I think that there are people who are people who are from here that have experienced a Boston that it, it's hard to forget. Embrace's job is to be concierges of this work, is to help open doors, doors that are closest to the where the people are. We cannot cancel people into change. We cannot cancel people into equity. And so you, you got to open the door that's closest to where people are standing. And through that opening of doors, get them to a place of belonging. You know, racism creates, you know, Heather McGee in her books, The, the Some of Us, talks about this zero-sum thinking that racism creates. Um, Embrace likes to think of that zero-sum thinking as this poverty of empathy, uh, that it also occurs, which is a byproduct of that. You know, it's it's hard to make people whole when you feel like you're being erased because you think that there's not enough empathy or love to go around to other people. And so I think our job is to facilitate this process where, you know, we let people know that and, and really try to create a space to let people know that there is plenty of love to go around and how do we become empathetic of our neighbors so that we can support them and then be supported in return? Well, let's talk about a few of the kind of policy goals, but first sort of lay the groundwork. Uh, 
you folks are going through a transition right now. You are expanding. Tell me about what this sort of next stage of Embrace looks like. What we talked about today is Thursday. And so this is one week as uh, for me as being an Embrace Incorporated employee. Um, so we recently launched out of the Boston Foundation and last Thursday was our last day of, uh, of being Boston Foundation employees. And so we're an undiscovered country. And, you know, and I think since the unveiling over a year ago, we started planning for our full launch. Uh, and I think it's part of this strategy as we see DEI being attacked and affirmative action being retracted now more than ever. Organizations that is making good on those promises, you know, oftentimes when things go wrong and people who pray, God, if I make it out of this, I'll do this, this, and this. I'll promise to do this. Or if we argue with someone or if we find out from our doctor we're ill, we pray, hey, if I get better, I promise to eat my Wheaties and exercise every day. I think all of us made some promises when we were scared and fearful of the pandemic. All of us made promises when we you know, saw those seconds in which George Floyd's life was taken from him. Embrace exists to try to help us fulfill that promise of belonging and equity. And so this this moment in time, I think, where we see that affirmative action, uh, we see the advances of the last few years slowly being pulled back. I think now more than ever, we need we need an embrace, not just embrace the organization, but embrace as a concept, a promise and a pledge that we made as a city. And then kind of structurally, how does that happen? Uh, this is going to be, I think, if I'm recalling correctly, a 15 member uh, staff organization. Um what are you hoping to see in terms of, of fundraising and outreach? What is kind of this first rollout look like in your kind of blue sky vision? Right. And so, you know, we're a startup day, you know, week one into an organization that is brand new, uh, that has a four or five year track record and uh, had been successful in raising some resources around the monument and building the initial infrastructure of the organization. So that's definitely a great starting point to launch an organization. One of the things that you should look out for us is the series of activations uh, from the Embrace Ideas Festival to the Embrace Maso Consalsa International Music Festival at the Embrace. So these activations that create third space inter-ethnic, multi-generational spaces uh, that we will continue to make. You'll you'll see uh, more research coming out of us. And so our next piece of research, the harm report will come out um, at the end of this month. And so we'll unveil that uh, fully. You'll see a continued work on policy. And so our big policy push has been through reparations. And so we were part of the coalition that got the city reparations commission launched. We're working on some statewide activations and work with legislators to do the same there. Uh, and so you'll see that we're continuing and amplifying. Um, we are in the process of building that and making good on that third promise. And so the National Embrace Center at Parcel 3 is still one of the things that we're working on. And so that those three promises that I mentioned in, in the beginning, we hope to open those doors in uh, 2027, 2028. I'm really fascinated to by kind of the the dual places for policy work and then also artistic expression when it comes to you know just helping 
folks sort of develop a sense of community, a sense of place, but then also, as you noted, it's kind of a place to gather, to sort of be in a city and shared space. So how is Embrace thinking about, uh, are there going to be any future monuments? What what does the artistic side of Embrace Boston's work look like? Or is there more of a pivot toward using the site that exists plus uh, additional advocacy and research work? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that. You know, we have our eyes uh, set on two more monuments, and I'm saying this everywhere as loud as I can. The plinth in which the former Emancipation Monument used to sit is one of the places in which we hope to build monuments. And so part of the challenge of the, the process of building a monument is that they are permanent. And so these monuments Monuments in general are usually built to commemorate individuals, people, places, moments in time. They are, whether we admit them or not, associated with values, the values of the individuals building them, the values of the individuals being memorialized. And so what does it mean as society changes to change our mind around our values, who's important, um, the values of the builders, the values of the people being memorialized? And so we'd like to have our second monument be the emancipation podium and commission a new monument every single year to have local artists reinterpret and reinterpret and reinterpret what it means for emancipation. So I can imagine a Palestinian or a Jewish or a a woman or an indigenous or any different type of person from any different type of orientation, a queer artist defining emancipation defining the ways in which emancipation is expressed through art, right? And so there's a narrative associated with this. Uh, and so that's what we hope to do in our in our second monument. And of course, on the grounds of the National Embrace Center, uh, we hope that our large scale third monument is erected there. And so that, that will be another piece uh, that we'll be working on. When you're thinking about the kind of individual recognition that can often come, as you, you mentioned, of course, you know, these monuments are usually erected to specific people. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. obviously has kind of a singular space in many people's minds for for his work and his role. What other kind of value would there be to highlighting other specific historical figures as opposed to having kind of a, a changing, evolving, I guess, process? I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is there... Is there a reason to or kind of a point to countering sort of the permanence of so many of the people that we have up in in permanent places of honor in Massachusetts and in Boston with more indifferent permanent installations as well? How do you kind of make that balance between evolution and also wanting to kind of leave a long lasting, if if nothing is permanent, but a long lasting mark for, for particular individuals? Yeah, and so in in some commemorations and some um, some newspapers in the globe, there is a Black History Month feature every uh, every day that's featuring one of the honorees from the 1965 Freedom Memorial Plaza. And so on the plaza where we are, where the embrace is sitting, is another monument, the 1965 Freedom Memorial Plaza that is honoring 69 other distinguished Bostonians from the 50s, 60s up to 1975. 45% of those individuals are women. Uh, two of those folks are Jewish. One person is white. Three people are Asian. Four people are Latinx. Three people are indigenous. And we really want to demonstrate that during this time, there was a multicultural, multi-ethnic cadre of people. The kings were not alone in this fight for justice. 
um, that they were Bostonians of different races and genders that were doing the work. When you have a monument that tells a story on the Freedom Trail, this historic site of freedom that is stretched throughout the central parts of Boston, to have a story that tells a story or multiple stories of these other leaders is part of this expanding narrative that we're trying to shift. And so there's an intentionality around that in both telling these the story of these unsung heroes and not thinking about the kings as these godlike creatures in a vacuum. And so those are permanent fixtures. And so, it, you know, I think we're trying to do the both and uh, and both expanding the story of the moment. And so that this great figure type of monumentation of people and history is not how we are looking at it. And also uh, the the ways in which monuments create permanency of values and us also saying that, hey, we can do both. We are allowed as human beings changing our minds. I can't imagine if you looked at my, if there was Spotify when I was a teenager, I'm, I'm 51 this year. If there was Spotify when I was a teenager, I imagine that my playlist when I was 13 years old is way different than what it is now, right? Because, you know, in those days, we listened to whole tapes, whole cassettes, front to back. You know, we had to make our own mixtapes, and and that was a rare thing. And so now we make mixtapes all the times on our playlist. And so not only the way that we listen to music has changed, the sequence and how we listen to multiple artists in one sitting has changed, right? And so we evolve. We evolve and our ideas evolve. And so like in this digital world, the physical world also can model how that evolution can take place. And I think I'd like to sort of conclude this by having you think back to what Boston looked like when many people who are maybe adults now were not so old and they looked around and they didn't really see themselves depicted in sort of these these great figures, these great icons. At some level, all of the conversations that we have are about simultaneously trying to move into kind of a, a new world, but also recognizing the world that we were coming from. So so what does it sort of signal in your view if someone is a child in Boston now as opposed to a child before there was the embrace? What is it? What does it mean to sort of have that in the center of the city when we haven't really had anything like that? I think the good news is that there are more opportunities that can demonstrate and and be there permanently that work in the psychological realm. And I think building and embrace operates in in that realm. And, and that possibility wasn't wasn't able to happen, right? The Kings came here in the 50s. Our beloved Mayor Mayor Menino uh, also wanted to build a monument for Dr. King. There wasn't the will in the city to do that. He, you know, there was a lot of obstacles. And I think when you watch and listen to those podcasts, uh, that we mentioned earlier, you, you you have an understanding of the obstacles. I think that we're also in a scary moment in time. You know, I was at a conversation the other day and the speaker said that their daughter, who was 10 years old, had more rights 10 years ago than they do right now. And so we're in a moment where uh, rights are being retracted uh, that we had 10 years ago. And so uh, while there's been great progress, there's been steady attacks on um, things that help all of us feel a sense of belonging in the city. And so to me, it shows that our work is not done. You know, Toni Morrison says that racism has a tendency of distracting us. And I think 
you know, there's a tendency for us to be distracted by all the ways in which our rights are being retracted. And I'd say, I'd say we have to stand fast and work united um, as a group of people to, to make good on American democracy and to make sure that everyone here, uh, citizens and residents and visitors alike, have the rights to, to be fully engaged in, in the promise of the American democracy. Thanks again to Amari Jeffries for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jennifer Smith. Our producer is John Gee. Leave a rating and review wherever you're hearing this now if you want to help other folks find us. And email podcast at commonwealthbeacon.org if you ever want to get in touch directly. We'll be back next week.